Would you please stand in honor of God and his word? And our scripture reading this morning, if you have a Bible and would like to turn there, is from Romans chapter 4. And we will be reading the first five verses of Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. May the Lord add blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. You may be seated. Father, indeed, how amazing is your grace and your mercy and your love and your faithfulness toward us, that while we were enemies, Christ died for our sins. It is a marvel. It is amazing. And so we just begin this morning in the time of preaching by giving you appropriate adoration and praise and thanksgiving. Lord, we ask that your spirit would bless your word and it being preached now and that you would come and continue in the process of transformation in each life here, making us holy, making us look increasingly like your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to publicly open your word now and we pray your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Tuesday marked the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and Baptist churches like Snowden Baptist Church are some of the children or the byproducts of the Reformation. But I think it would be very fair for us to say that really the entire world changed as a result of Martin Luther's great discovery in the scriptures. And his discovery was namely that sinful people are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone. The theological idea of justification, oh, and I forgot to God's glory alone. That's the fifth one. The theological idea of justification was indeed very central to the Reformation, and so I think it's fitting that during this 500th anniversary week we focus on the subject of justification. This is the seventh sermon In our series of sermons on the cross of Jesus Christ, we have reflected in past weeks on many of the main New Testament motifs that relate to the cross. Motifs such as sacrifice and redemption and propitiation and substitution. Today's cross motif, again, is this motif of justification. 
Martin Luther called justification articulus stantis vel cadentis ecclesiae, or in plain English, Luther said that justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. In more recent days, J.I. Packer has written that justification is the heart of the gospel and that a church that lapses from justification can scarcely be called Christian. Friends, you and I need to know not only what the doctrine of justification is, we also need to let the truth of justification saturate our head and our heart so that we will then live and act and speak differently. That's the effect that justification has on people once we digest its glorious gospelness, if that's a word, gospelness. I want to begin here off the top by having us look at some biblical material that's going to help us to gain an understanding of what justification is. But the first thing we need to do is to make sure that we're all in the right postal code as we begin to talk about justification. So when we spoke several weeks ago about sacrifice, we were in the postal code of the temple and the tabernacle. Sacrifice is priestly work that happens in temple and or tabernacle. And then when we spoke in another week past about redemption, we were in the postal code of commerce or business. To redeem is to buy back, to purchase. It's more of a commercial sort of idea. We were in the postal code of commerce. Well, this morning we need to understand... When we speak of justification and justifying, we're in the world of the law court. So think judges and think verdicts and think gavels and sentences that judges hand down and legal cases. Uh, If you think that way, you're in the right postal code for this idea of justification. The language that surrounds justification is what we call forensic language. In other words, it's the language of the law court. Now, of course, the New Testament writer who speaks most about the idea of justification is the apostle Paul. Paul had been raised, we need to remember, in a Jewish home in a Jewish environment, and Paul himself had been extremely zealous for the Jewish traditions of his ancestors, according to Galatians 1.14. The point for our purposes here this morning is that the Bible that Paul was immersed in growing up was the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So that Paul's theology of justification in a book like Romans grew out of what he had read in his Old Testament. Paul did not simply create the New Testament doctrine of justification out of thin air. Rather, it grew organically out of the pages of his Old Testament. So the question is, what had Paul seen in his Old Testament? That's the question. Well, Paul had seen, first of all, that the primary actor 
in the cosmic law court was God himself. Paul saw that God was judge in the cosmic supreme court, in the universal law court. Paul would have read Isaiah 3.13 in his Hebrew Bible. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. And Paul would have read Isaiah 33.22 as well. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. And Paul would have read the words of Abraham in Genesis 18, where Abraham had said to God, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Paul's Bible taught Paul that God was the judge of all the earth. That's the first thing. But what sort of judge was God? What were the characteristics of this judge? What was God's reputation as he sat as judge over all the earth? Well, Paul would have flipped over to Deuteronomy 32.4, and there Paul would have understood that all God's work is perfect. Did you know that? All God's work is perfect, that all God's ways are justice, that God himself is just and upright. And Paul would have turned over to Exodus 23, 7, where God says concerning his role as cosmic judge, listen, he says that he would never acquit the wicked. God, as a just and upright judge, would never allow the wicked to get off scot-free. And Paul would have deepened into his understanding of the character of the divine judge when Paul read the Psalms. Psalm 5.4 says that God does not delight in wickedness. And Psalm 11.7 says that the Lord is righteous. Psalm 33.5 says that God loves righteousness and justice. Not to mention Zephaniah 3.5, which says that God is righteous and he does no injustice. Paul would understand from reading his Hebrew Bible that the judge who sits judging in the cosmic courtroom was just and righteous and perfect in all his judgments. And even further, Paul would have seen in his Old Testament Bible that God the judge, listen, had given a law, had given a law that directly reflected his own perfect righteousness. Deuteronomy 4.8 calls the statutes and rules of God righteous. The statutes and rules of God are righteous. Psalm 19.7 says in very explicit terms that the law of the Lord is what? Perfect. And that the testimony of the Lord is sure. Paul would have seen by reading his Old Testament that both the lawgiver and the law that the lawgiver gave were perfect and righteous and just and they were without flaw. And being, an, being immersed in the Hebrew scriptures as he was, Paul would have also noticed 
that the saints on the ground, they often prayed to the judge in heaven, appealing to the judge's upright character and law. For example, we already heard it uh, Heard it voiced this morning, Abraham in Genesis 18, he said, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's a rhetorical question that assumes that God as righteous judge will act righteously and with justice. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Or Solomon in 1 Kings 8 Verses 31 and 32, Solomon fully expected that God the righteous judge would condemn the guilty, condemn the guilty, and vindicate the righteous. Because that's what a good and righteous judge does. He condemns guilty parties and he vindicates parties that are in the right. Growing up zealous for the traditions of his ancestors, immersed in the Hebrew Bible, Paul would have developed a clear picture of God, the king and judge. And God was the kind of judge who was perfectly just and upright and righteous. God, the judge, would not acquit the guilty or declare the guilty person innocent. And neither would God condemn the person who was in the right. And hallelujah and amen to that. If I go to court because an arsonist has burnt down my house and the judge in the courtroom winks at the arsonist and says, it's your lucky day. I'm letting you off free even though I'm pretty convinced you're guilty. I think in that moment I might throw a fit right there in the courtroom All of us want just judges, amen, in situations like that. It's only right in a properly functioning society that people who are guilty of crimes receive due punishment, while victims get some satisfaction, at least, in seeing justice served. And God goes out of his way in the Old Testament to assure us time and time again that he is always going to be 110% righteous in all his judgments, condemning the guilty and acquitting the innocent. And God works his character as righteous judge into the very fabric of the law that he gives. The law that human beings are to go and live out on the ground. Human beings are to reflect in their judgments, in their human courtrooms, they are to reflect the just and righteous character of the divine judge. And so God, in Deuteronomy 25.1, he lays down the expected pattern for the human courtroom. The expected pattern for the human courtroom is that innocent people will be acquitted and guilty people will be condemned. God wants human beings to ensure that this pattern remains constant. That the pattern isn't reversed somehow or perverted somehow. And so we have a verse like Isaiah 5.23 which pronounces a woe W-O-E, a woe on the human judge who would, de- who would dare to acquit the guilty because that judge has received some sort of bribe. 
Perhaps the clearest pronouncement from the divine judge concerning his desire for proper human justice is found over in Proverbs 17.15. Listen to this. Where God says, Proverbs 17.15, listen. He who justifies the wicked, justifies the wicked, and he who condemns the righteous are both an abomination to the Lord. Did you hear that? He who justifies the wicked, that is, he who gives a verdict of not guilty to the person who is clearly wicked, that person who gives the verdict is an abomination to the Lord, just as he who condemns the person who is righteous is an abomination to the Lord. To the Lord. Paul, as he reads his Old Testament scriptures, a Pharisee of Pharisees, committed to the Jewish scriptures, he would have developed a clear picture of the divine judge and his character. Paul would have gathered together a coherent picture also of how judgments on the human scene were to be carried out in keeping with the character of the divine judge. Listen, the idea was... God does not acquit the the guilty. God does not justify or issue a pardon to the guilty and let them off scot-free. God does not simply declare the unrighteous righteous while condemning the righteous. So neither should you in your human courtrooms. That's the idea. Now, one of the many reasons that I love jazz music is that a piece of music can be sailing along smoothly in one direction. As a listener, you're listening and you're navigating along pretty easily as you listen. One chord change kind of leads naturally into the next. It seems fairly predictable to your ears. You can sort of hear where things are going. But then suddenly... The tune goes in an unexpected direction. Your ears perk up because suddenly there's a chord dropped in that you did not expect. The chord still works in a harmonic way. It's still in keeping with the parameters of the music, but it was quite an unexpected change of direction, and it makes the piece, it scratches an itch. It makes it even greater more interesting than it had been up to that point. Well, friends, in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, the one we've been talking about, who had been raised reading all those scriptures about God as judge and the righteous judgments in God's court of law, Paul purposely, purposely drops a rather unexpected chord into the symphony of Scripture in Romans chapter 4, a tension chord of sorts. And it certainly makes our ears perk up, at least it should if we've been reading our whole Bible. Paul puts this theological chord in on purpose, and he does it in order to help us see more of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now again, we have to understand, Paul knew 
Proverbs 17.15 very well. He knew that it was an abomination to God to justify the wicked. He knew it was an abomination to God if a verdict of not guilty were to be pronounced over a person or persons who were clearly guilty. And yet, and yet, Paul says in Romans 4, 5, that God the judge is the one who justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. The whole verse reads, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Do you hear the unexpected chord here? The tension chord. How in the world Can Paul say that God justifies the ungodly when the whole witness of the Old Testament was God will never acquit the guilty or justify the wicked? Does God betray himself here? Did Paul get this wrong? I feel like the guy in the Batman. Tune in next week when we... Showing my age, aren't I? (laughs) No, friends, Paul didn't get it wrong. He got it very right. And God does not betray himself in any way, shape, or form when he justifies the ungodly. Let's walk through the New Testament picture of justification to see what it looks like and how this tension Resolves. I want to give you the reality of our situation, your situation and mine, followed by the remedy to the situation. The real situation is that you and I and every other human being who has ever lived, save Jesus of Nazareth, are on trial before God the Judge for our sins. As John Frame reminds us, we are on trial both for the sin of Adam, our representative, and for the sins that we have committed in this life. John Calvin reminds us so well that in a situation of being on trial before this holy, eternal, divine, almighty judge, I want you to listen carefully. He reminds us that we should, each of us, we should despair of trying to make any kind of case for our acquittal or our pardon based on our own righteousness or good works. I want you to hear that well. You should despair, going before God, of trying to make any kind of case for your pardon or your acquittal based on your own righteousness or your good works. Calvin says this, and I want you to listen carefully. This really affected me in my study this week. He says, let us envision for ourselves that judge. Not as our minds naturally imagine him, 
but as he is depicted for us in Scripture. And here's the judge. By whose brightness the stars are darkened. By whose strength the mountains are melted. By whose wrath the earth is shaken. Who catches the wise in their craftiness. Besides whose purity all things are defiled. Whose righteousness not even the angels can bear. Let us behold him, I say, sitting in judgment to examine the deeds of men. Who will stand confident before his throne? Close quote. Friend, you need to hear me very well this morning. You have absolutely zero hope and less of making a case for your acquittal before God based on your own righteousness and your own good works in this life. It is an utterly hopeless, fruitless endeavor. Whoever you are, you should vigorously and passionately distrust yourself in the matter of gaining a right status with God. Romans 3.23 says, How many have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? All. Is that 99.9%? It's 100% of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are, each of us, guilty of lawlessness before the tribunal of God. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. What you and I deserve, in fact, as we stand before the holy judge, is for the judge to declare over us the divinely ordained penalty for sin, the wrath of God. No amount of parading our puny little good works before him is going to matter. So what's the remedy? The remedy to our very dire situation as guilty sinners who stand before the holy, eternal judge who made us. You need to hear this before you die. The remedy comes... Blessedly it comes from the judge himself. The judge acting in undeserved favor to demerited sinners. We talked about this in our baptismal class this morning. It's not like we're neutral, we just need a little merit. No, it's we're way under zero. We're demerited. The judge acts in undeserved favor to demerited guilty sinners. He decides that he will justify the ungodly. And how does he do that? How does this work happen so that God stays true to the Old Testament witness that we looked at earlier? Here's what happens. The father hands over the son on the cross. The son... Jesus Christ willingly gives himself up on the cross there to act as a substitute for guilty sinners. The Son is made sin 
The Son absorbs the divine wrath that was coming on sinners. The Son takes the guilty verdict that sinners deserved, and the Son dies under that verdict on the cross so that God's justice is thereby carried out. See, the judge does not simply wink at our guilt and say, it's your lucky day, and then leave our sin unpunished. He does not simply acquit the wicked without justice being served. God punishes wickedness in the person of his Son, who has made sin as our substitute, and divine justice is thereby carried out. And sinners are acquitted. We ought to be shouting hallelujah right about now. The ungodly are justified. Sinners are declared not guilty. And they are declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. As Romans 5.9 says, sinners are justified how? By his blood. Let's say that together. By his blood. That's how ungodly persons are justified by God. By the blood of Jesus. Friend, you can be justified. You can be acquitted. If you are a person who recognizes your sin debt before God and you are penitent, that is, you repent of your sin and you believe that Jesus Christ and Him crucified is your only hope of making peace with God. In that moment, when you trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, in the moment of your conversion to Jesus Christ, God justifies you. And that justification is permanent, and it is full. You can never become more justified than you are in the moment when you were converted to Jesus Christ. God, in astounding grace, justifies the ungodly. Now, a good way to think of justification is that it's like a single coin with two sides. On the one side... Of the coin, Jesus is wounded for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities. Your sin debt is taken to the cross by the substitute Jesus, and he dies in your place, and he suffers wrath to death on account of your sin. And the divine judge declares you not guilty because of what Jesus has done. But then on the other side of the same single glorious justification coin is the fact, listen carefully, that the pure, perfect, unadulterated obedience of Jesus, his obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, that obedience, that righteousness of Jesus Christ that was displayed in his entire righteous life and death. It's a righteousness that is alien to you and I. His obedience is reckoned to our account. And God accepts us as just 
as righteous because of Jesus. Because of our union with Jesus, God declares us righteous. Amazing fact. To be justified is not only to be be declared not guilty, it is further to be declared righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness. John Frame is helpful here. He says of the believer in Jesus, our legal status is not just not guilty, not neutral, but righteous. If you think of your legal status numerically, Sin had plunged you deep into negative numbers. God's forgiveness brought you back up to zero, but the righteousness of Christ took you far above zero in the eyes of God. (laughs) What is justification then? I want to give you three separate definitions here so that we get this in our hearts and minds. Three separate definitions from three trusted theologians that I, that I find quite helpful in their own ways. So the first definition of justification is the briefest of the three. It comes from Jerry Bridges in his book, The Gospel for Real Life. Great book if you can get your hands on it. Bridges says, justification means that God has forgiven all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. I like that definition for its brevity. And for the fact that Bridges there highlights the two sides of the justification coin. Forgiveness of sins because of the cross and being accepted as righteous only because of Jesus. Well, the second somewhat longer definition comes from a recent book by Brian Vickers, who teaches at Southern Seminary. Taught one or two classes when I was down there. Uh, Vickers book is called Justification by Grace Through Faith, and his, justi- his definition of justification reads this way. He says, justification is God's verdict, it is a verdict, that in Christ and on the basis of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, our sins are forgiven and we are counted as those who are perfectly obedient in his sight. A glorious gospel fact. He says, in other words, God declares us to be righteous. Notice again how Vickers hits on the two sides of the justification coin, the forgiveness of sins in the cross and being counted righteous because of Jesus. That's also a very helpful definition. And then finally, Roger Nicole, from his book, Our Sovereign Savior. Nicole says this, Justification is that blessing whereby our sin has been expunged in the work of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's his word. Justification is that blessing whereby the righteousness of Christ is placed upon us so that we appear in the presence of God clothed in it. Hallelujah. Justification is that redemptive blessing of God whereby in Jesus Christ we have been entitled to all the blessings that Christ has secured by his death and resurrection. Hallelujah. Amen. (laughs) I love that definition because it is appropriately worshipful, and it's doxological, and I like that. Very briefly now, as we work all this toward a close, I want to stress or perhaps re-stress because it's so important a couple of aspects of justification that we need to be especially clear on. As Protestant Christians, 
who are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The first thing is that the ground of our justification is Jesus Christ. Again, the ground of our justification is Jesus Christ. Christ alone. Justification comes only because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. Yes, we are justified by faith, according to the New Testament, but what is faith? Our faith is not the ground of our justification. Faith simply looks to the ground of our justification, who is Jesus, and faith lays hold of Jesus. Faith opens its empty hand to receive and trust Jesus Christ. John Frame says again, faith is what receives, what receives the grace of God in Christ. So theologians have described its role as instrumental. Faith claims no merit for itself. It makes no claim to deserve the gift of God's righteousness. It confesses that only Christ can save. Are you with me? Only Christ can save and only his righteousness can justify. Again, can't stress it enough. The ground of our justification is Christ. Faith is the instrument by which we receive Christ and his finished work. Faith is not the ground of our justification. And then secondly, we need to be crystal clear, as Protestant Baptists, that justification has to do with God declaring sinners righteous, not making sinners righteous. Again, justification has to do with God declaring sinners righteous, not making Sinners righteous. Declaring, not making. One way to to say it would be to say that justification is a verdict. It's not a rehabilitation program. There's a name for the rehabilitation program that follows the verdict. And the name of the rehab program is sanctification. Being made holy, life in the spirit. But sanctification and justification, for us Protestants at least, are two separate things. John Stott's image is helpful here. If just He says if justification is the tree, sanctification is the apples. <laughs> I like that. The tree of justification makes the apples of sanctification, not the other way around. Justification has to happen before sanctification can happen. Or as Tom Schreiner puts it, justification, so being declared not guilty and being declared righteous, is the foundation for sanctification, life in the spirit. And the joy of being right with God, justification, frees believers to obey God, sanctification. So again, just to be clear, justification, because it's different in Catholicism, Justification and sanctification for us Protestants are different things. They are not synonyms. But having said that, you won't ever have justification without sanctification. The tree is going to be accompanied by the apples. The sum of what we've been talking about this morning 
is that justification being declared not guilty and righteous by God. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and it is revealed to us in Scripture alone. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and it is revealed to us in the, in the Scripture alone. Those are the five solas of the Reformation right there. Now, I want you to hear me very well as we close. Here comes the application of all this. I want you to hear me very well, especially if, like me, you're a bit of a theology nerd. I want you to listen very well. Brian Vickers has done us a great service when he reminds us that affirming and applauding and promoting the theological idea of justification is very different than actually resting in the Jesus of justification. Yes? Being as stringently orthodox as we can muster in formulating our doctrine of justification is different than actually flinging our whole selves into Jesus for salvation. As Vickers puts it, no amount of confessional orthodoxy is enough to save anyone. And being a dyed-in-the-wool believer of justification is not the same thing as trusting Christ for salvation. Friend, don't make the deadly mistake of trying to justify yourself before God with your amazing orthodoxy and your proper learned theology. Don't seek your assurance before God in your theological correctness. Jesus alone is the ground of your justification and Jesus is not willing to budge from that position. And for that matter, theology nerd or not, no matter who you are, and this applies to all of us now because we're all legalists at some level. We just are. Stop trying to justify yourself before God by what you do or what you don't do. To borrow from Vickers again, stop thinking you need more than Jesus to be right with God. I need to say that again. Stop thinking you need more than Jesus to be right with God. Church legalists, please listen to me. Whether it's faithfulness in church activity. I served for 40 years. Whether it's fasting, spiritual disciplines. Whether it's praying more or exercising your hospitality gift, whether it's abstaining from booze or abstaining from playing cards, I don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls who do. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I like your laughter. Whether it's wearing certain clothes, whether it's 
helping others all the time or reading the right books or staying away from certain movies or giving faithfully in the offering plate or going on the right diet or homeschooling while others are in public school. None of those things and all of those things together will never make you right with God. Jesus justifies. Our justification is in Jesus. In Jesus. Look to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Depend on Jesus. Center yourself on Jesus. Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Jesus is the immovable ground of your justification. It is God who justifies, says Scripture. It is God who justifies. And listen, when God justifies you, God is 100% on your side. He is 100% for you. John Piper reminded me of that this week in a sermon of his that I listened to, and I'm done here. He said, listen carefully, church legalists, he said that it's not that God is 99.9% for you. It's not that God is 98% for you and you feel this looming 1% or 2% that he's not for you and I have to kind of make it up, I have to work to gain that 2%. It's not that. It's not... Well, yeah, I understand the cross and I understand grace and all that, but, th- but there's this little something that I have to do to get from 99% up to 100%. No. It's God who justifies. And when God justifies an ungodly type like you, God is 100% for you. I want to repeat what Piper said. Every sin you commit as a justified believer is a forgiven sin. Rest in him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you and thank you that this discovery in Scripture, justification by faith 500 years ago, caused this reformation and caused this freedom to be revealed to the church where prior to that there had been a binding. And Father, we pray as believers in 2017 that this week we would take this truth that we have been basking in this morning and live into it as people who have been freed by Jesus Christ. We pray, help us to be a blessing to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved of the Lord, go from here with rejoicing. Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is always by your side. Cast worry aside, and by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God will keep you. Amen. Amen.